Welcome, everyone. Oh, this is Kelly Carlin, and this is Waking from the American Dream.
Well, that is my uh, tried and true, as always, Chandler Travis Orchestra. This time they're playing Nature Boy, and you can find that on his CD, Let's Have a Pancake. And as you know, you can always find him on uh, ChandlerTravis.com. So I've been gone for a month, uh, busy. I've been a busy, uh, as my father would say, I was as busy as a dyke in a hardware store. Uh, I was busy. I was doing my show, my one-woman show, A Carlin Home Companion. I was previewing it here in L.A., working on it, workshopping it, writing, rewriting it uh, 10,000 times. I, I do believe I've, I've rewritten it that many times. And then I went up to Montreal to the Just for Laughs Festival. And uh, wow, I, Montreal was... Amazing. It completely changed my life. I had no idea. I mean, you know, you want to believe that cool shit's going to happen in your life, but you can't bank on it and you can't think about it when you're on stage because then it really fucks with your head. So uh, I just went up there and focused and did my work and showed up in a beautiful theater at the Plasta Arts called, uh, what was it called? Um, oh shit, some French word. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It was called, it was Fifth Room in French. Oh, I can't remember right now. Oh, Cinquième, Cinquième Salle. And uh, this beautiful room, which sat 400 people, but it was really intimate. It was like a black box, but just gorgeous. Biggest stage I've ever been on. And uh, biggest audience I've had to kind of hold the space of. So that was, that was really interesting for me to really hold that space. I'd just done the show the week before in an 88-seater, which is very intimate at the Santa Monica Playhouse. And uh, so holding that space was different and, um, and, and challenging in some ways. Like I see how you have to kind of move up to larger spaces and get used to holding it that way and, um, and, being, and just being the person that kind of weaves it all together for the audience ener- energetically. Uh, but it was incredible. I, I got just, you know, beautiful, beautiful feedback. I got a beautiful review from the Laughspin people, which uh, Laughspin.com, which uh, made me, I was sitting in the lobby. <clears throat> so like immediately after I do my show the next day, Friday, I have to put on my producer hat because we're producing two green room episodes Saturday night. So I'm like now like getting logistics ready for like, you know, Eddie Izzard and Tim Minchin and, and Caroline Ray and people like that. And, you know, talk about like hum- humbling yourself. Like I went from like rock star the night before to, hi, do we have a shuttle set up for Mr. Eddie Izzard today? Uh, and so I'm in the, in the lobby with um, my coordinating producer, Flint, and we're in the lobby of the Delta Hotel. That's where we're doing all of our work because it's free Wi-Fi and we're not stupid. And uh, we're in this corner table where literally there's all of Montreal's outside and it's beautiful, gorgeous Montreal. And this review pops up in my inbox. So I start to read it. And I'm now <laughs> reading it out loud to Flint, sobbing. I'm sobbing because this person who wrote the uh, review uh, just completely got what I've been thinking about and wanting to do the last 20 years of my life. And to have someone so clearly see you and get you after kind of hiding in your house for decades uh, is is it felt like a miracle in some ways, and you know we don't talk about miracles much here, but uh, but it, but it was, and so there I was in this lobby sobbing, reading this thing. Oh my god, I thought I lost my mind, but it was incredible. Montreal was fantastic. The green room, the last two episodes, 
tune in people because um some fucking great shit goes on we have mr tony clifton on one of the shows all i can say is epic television again from mr paul provenza it's spectacular stuff uh what else did i want to talk about um Yes. So Montreal. So and Montreal is going to kind of fit in because what happened for me in Montreal personally was that I realized I've been kind of striving and wanting to become something for a long time and doing a lot of work, really, you know, doing my work, paying my dues uh, the last 10 years, especially with storytelling and performing and writing. And then suddenly having this other kind of level happen to me where people are coming up to me and opportunities are knocking at my door in such a way. And there's a new storyline being written about my life and, and literally a new internal narrative is happening for me. It's like, oh, that's that's there's an old story of Kelly. Now there's this new story and bridging the gap between those two stories without losing your mind, without going psychotic, you know, without the ego going, fuck uh, is, is part of, uh, part of life and part of evolution. So uh, the narrative, we'll be talking a little bit about that in a second, but I want to introduce my guest today, uh, who is, uh, going to be here in a second. No, he's here now. Uh, so you've seen I my, I can leave and come right back. You've seen this this gentleman on, uh, of course, Chelsea Lately. He's on the round table there a lot. Uh, he just spent, uh, I think it was last or earlier this year in spring, opening for Dane Cook at these huge arenas. Speaking about holding big space, I want to talk about that. Yeah. You've seen him on late night television doing his stand up. Uh, he's uh, on a lot with Pat Morrison on, I don't know if it's just local NPR or the whole national thing, but. That's well, always you count the web, <laughs> the webs, the Radio interwebs. Local. Yes. And um, of course, I know this gentleman because uh, at my house, I have these things called the polymind commune hangs on Friday nights. And um, this gentleman and Paul Provenza are, <laughs> are always having the most intense conversations in a corner somewhere. <laughs> in fact, one night I went into my studio, which is another part of the house, went and uh, s- smoked something and uh, listened <laughs> to the whole album of Wish You Were Here, came back out again, and Paul and this gentleman were had not moved. I mean, they were the still same angle of intensity in the conversation. Uh, I want to welcome to the show today Mr. Ben Glee. Thank you very much for having me, Kelly. It is very much an honor to be here. I'm excited. Oh, well, it's an honor to have you. You make me laugh, and uh, we've already had some great conversations. So uh, I was excited to have you on the show, and I figured, you know, we could pick a, a con- we could pick a topic out of a hat, probably, and 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 go and riff for a while. But uh, I can leave and get a hat if you like. <laughs> is and, this live? And quit? Yeah. Well, yeah, kind okay, of. Yeah, but right. but you know, it's 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 okay. It's uh, we have plenty plenty to talk about. Okay, good. Phil for 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he goes and gets a top hat <laughs> and and extra little pieces of paper that we can write topics on. <laughs> um, so, but I wanted to talk to you about that, the whole idea of like when you first started and I imagine like most stand-ups, and I know you do some acting too, but you know, you start at these smaller things and maybe you do five minutes or 10 minutes and then suddenly now you're opening and then you're featuring and then you're opening for Dane Cook in an arena. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, like how do you how do you manage that like next step in your in your head? Well, I mean, it's even further an arc narratively speaking mm-hmm. in, in my life because something that um, a lot of people don't know about me is I grew up with a debilitating speech problem. Wow, I couldn't even talk to one person. I couldn't like make often make sounds come out of my mouth 
to a friend I'm passing in the hallway. I couldn't even say hi. Wow. And saw speech therapists for much of my childhood. And this lasted on and off, really, till I was about 21, but more on than off. And um, so to go from that to arenas oh, no is shit. pretty exciting progression, I would say. I'd say that's a fantastic progression. I feel good about it, at least. You know, my mom always makes me feel nice about myself when I, when I talk about it. But, and by the way, your mom darling thank you and i brought her to one of the commune hangs you did and she she baked food for us she did indeed. it was amazing <laughs> yeah she's the best um but anyway so uh how do you prepare for that in your mind i mean i've sort of had a really unconventional route when it's come to the progression of my career my stand-up career because like i was exposed to these larger things kind of early on i had a I had a even, – even while I was still to a degree battling my speech problem, mm-hmm. I had this show throughout college I would do called The Glebe Show. It was this late-night talk show, and um, even though I would sometimes stutter on air as I was, like, conquering the last bits of it, mm-hmm. it became this big thing on campus to, like, where my senior year of college was the fourth annual live Glebe show, 3,000 students live in the crowd. Wow. Carmen Electra was my guest. I was 21 <laughs> years old. Nice. And um, it was pretty intense. So I got that those experiences. Then I moved back to L.A. and started you know, doing open mics and bringer mm-hmm. rooms. And I got pretty fortunate pretty quickly into it, about a year into it. Um, Jamie Masada asked me to start doing College Night at the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. And I was... And I promoted the hell out of that room off of my friend Scott Richardson and then and hosted it every week and did these really unique creative shows with packed crowds. And pretty much about a year in, I was performing weekly mm. with people like Dane Cook mm. and Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. wow. and Jay Moore and everybody that would drop in. You right, know? right, right, right. Um, and so it, I really had like a nice taste of what it could be like early. And I don't know, as to filling up large spaces, I a little bit, just from my own philosophy, a little bit disagree with what you were saying in the intro about how yeah. you need to work up to bigger spaces. Right. I don't really see it that way. I guess coming from how I've looked at speech and presentation and crowds so differently in my life, and, uh-huh. and I feel like it's just a very simple little psychological formula, hmm. and you can fill any space as easily as you can a small space. Right. Um, I just think it's about the way you deliver it and your confidence, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and to a degree, I also found arenas actually surprisingly to be more intimate huh. in some way. Wow. Than playing even at the improv. Because at the improv, there's no monitors. People in the back see you a little bit small. Right. You kind of have to be a little big and like make sure you're kind of yelling to Like them. you're in a theater theater. Like, exactly. Like, right, right, right. It's almost the mic's almost immaterial. Right. Whereas in an arena, they paid big money to be there. They're yeah. They're very amped. They really want to laugh their ass off. Right. And there's cameras on – and we're playing in the round, in the middle of this arena mm-hmm. with cameras on every side. So everywhere I turn – my face is like 20 feet big. Right, People right. in the back row see every detail <laughs> right, of my face. That's true. So wow. you can actually be a lot more subtle. Yeah. I was bringing at certain moments like this whole arena down to a pin drop silence. Mm. And those jokes didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Pin drop silence before a good punchline. Yeah, yeah. And it was this crazy yeah. yin and yang well, to, to and, execute. And there is something ab- about that idea of um, – for me, because I'm a storyteller, it's about telling the story. It's about being grounded inside of my body and trusting the moment of what I'm about to say that that, that delivers the energy, whatever that energy is. Right. And, and you know, and it, 
And it did, you know, that's, I, I like that because I think it's going to help me because I know that I, you know, I want to tour my show and, and do some, some bigger hauls, you know, right. and, and it's an amazing show, by the way, anybody who's listening, it, it, I was moved almost to tears and I'm a, I'm a guy who tries to be tough <laughs> and also laughed my ass off. It was brilliant. Oh, thank you. Really loved it. Thank you so much. Uh, but, but there is something about, um, I know because I'm so used to doing these smaller spoken word things here right. in LA, you know, where you can where you can almost literally see everyone's single eyeball, you know, right. which I I do like. I like eye contact. Sure. You know, I like that exchange, and and yet I I did feel also that there were moments where you, no matter what, even if you can't see that back row, you're creating you're you're letting people in. Oh yeah. So there's an intimacy in that way. I mean it's just more people to connect with. Like I always tell right. people people are so afraid of crowds. They say it's the number one fear of people. And mm-hmm. that used to be my number one fear. I literally would shut down if I was going to be called on in a class of fifteen people. Right. Where I would tell teachers, please never call on me. I cannot talk. Mm. And I would realize that actually I was seeing it all flipped. I was realizing that people First of all, when it comes to conversation or public speaking, especially public speaking, people have very low expectations. Mm-hmm. They just are glad they're not the one talking. <laughs> so <Sorry>. when you're <laughs> on the on the floor, their half their brain is thinking, "Thank God that's not me." The other half of them is like, "I'll take anything. I'm bored. I, I get entertained by reality shows or staring at the wall or twiddling my thumbs for an hour. If you give them anything above thumb twiddling, you're killing it." So you see, people see that wrong. And then I also realized that silence is hugely powerful. People mm. are afraid of silence. Yeah. I love to take huge long pauses. Look what it does. Yeah. It changes the energy. It draws everybody in. You yeah. Know, when I learned that tip early in stand-up, somebody said to me one time, um, when people are dropping the checks, that's like the worst moment in a stand-up night yes. because everybody gets distracted. Yes. And they said – People think you're supposed to sh- try to shout over that and dominate over it. It's the exact opposite. Be completely quiet. Yeah. The whole room and they're like, sucks what, up. What's quiet. going on? Yeah. yeah. It's like a Ziploc bag or something. Yeah. It hermetically seals in the, the attention. Yeah. Um, but – and then I also realized that you know, when we come talking about like mathematical formulas almost, in a one-on-one conversation, to me that's a lot more stressful. You need to be 100% successful. The one person you're talking to has to really dig it or you lose that conversation. <laughs> yes. To a crowd of 100, if you have 75 of them loving it, you're hitting a grand slam. Yeah. You're killing it. That's, That's a less than 100% success ratio. To, to 10,000 people, Yeah, if you have 7,000 <laughs> right. rolling, right. it sounds like you're the king of England yeah. back in like the times when the monarchy mattered. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah, that, that is good. And it's so funny because... Because like before I went on a stage in Montreal, you know, the adrenaline kicks in and, and I think it's a part of that too is like, wow, big room, big adrenaline also. But for me, what always helps me with the storytelling is even though there is 400 people or 40 or whatever it is in the crowd, I always imagine the one person who can't live without this story, can't imagine life without hearing this story, and is on the edge of their seat to hear it. And I know that out of 400, there's definitely one person in the audience like that. Absolutely. And so, you know, I I find myself uh, the joy of giving that person the story. And And you can find it in anybody's eyes. Yes. That's the beauty. The bigger the crowd, there's just more options. Yeah. Literally, you can just glance. You still can see the first, you know, you can see very well the first five, ten rows. Yeah. Anybody whose eyes are wide at you, that's a great person to talk to. But then somebody calls something out from 300 feet back in aisle, you know, 
double, triple mezzanine, twice removed, right. level seven. <laughs> you hear them and you feel their tonality. You can connect to them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, Bane actually has evolved to become really so much more of a – he's a storyteller in his act these mm-hmm. days. He's not mm-hmm. so much of a jokey joke comic anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I've learned watching him is that all you need to – connect when when telling a story to a crowd is just two things you need to be authentic to what you're saying to mm-hmm. your story mm-hmm. and to the uniqueness of that moment yeah if you just do those two things stay in the po- that keeps you in the pocket and yep you can just you know you can whatever you, know, you can get your point across absolutely uh what was i going to talk about to you oh oh i no, no i'm not gonna go there right now um i want to talk about this narrative thing uh I read something on Sunday, and I, I sent it to Ben, too, and I'm wondering how many of my listeners here read it, too. It's uh, It was in the op-ed section of the New York Times on Sunday. It's called What Happened to Obama or Obama's Passion. I think it was also uh, mentioned in the thing by this guy, Drew Weston, who's a professor of psychology at Emory University. Now, being a Jungian depth psychologist – uh, you know, and all, I'm all about archetypes and mythology and narratives and, and being, you know, in just anything in psychology, you start to learn that the human brain is actually wired to understand reality and uses story to help understand that. Right. I mean, that's why little kids from day one want a story. Give me a story. It's like a way to kind of weave in all of the information, all the data in the world. And uh, I was t- I tweeted about this. I think it was on Sunday when I read it, or something like that. And someone tweeted back, you know, well, I don't th- I don't want to think that I'm manipulating someone else's narrative. And I said back to them in 140 characters. It's always fun <laughs> to have one of these discussions on Twitter. I thought, oh dear, can we just call each other so I can talk to you? But but you know, this person was all worried about manipulation of the narrative. And I said, well, the bottom line is is that um, it's. Uh, well, someone's going to manipulate the narrative. Someone's going to shape the storyline. Right. And and as we know, these last certainly since Reagan, the Republicans are very, very good at this. They're very good at creating an interesting narrative that that connects with values of the American public in such a way that you know makes people s- sit up and listen and say, "Hey, you've got you've got the more interesting version of what's going on," or, or I can or I feel that you know my values of you know individuality or freedom. Are, are being uh, connected to here, yeah. and, and I like that story. And, and who doesn't like the story of individuality and freedom? But um, well, they're just genius at it. They they are, and, and I and I and I, I still need to figure out like why why is that? You know, why do the Democrats have? And and, and, the, and just to get back to the article here for a second, what the article's saying is that Obama has had a chance from day one, in, inauguration day, basically. To shape the narrative, and you know, this guy lays out a really incredible narrative, actually, in this thing where I was thinking, it's amazing, so amazing, amazing article. Yeah, I'm like, shit, man, why didn't you know? And it's like, yeah, this is true. I mean, the first thing he says, I know you're scared and angry. Many of you have lost your jobs, your homes, your hope. This was a disaster, but not a natural disaster. And he ends up, you know, making a villain out of the story, and you know, and and here's the and here's the direction we need right. to go to fix it, and. It's you know, and, and then he talks a lot about Obama's personal psychology. Who and basically argues that that he doesn't think that he had the temperament of character yes. to bend the arc of history in a way where he could have really made the big sweeping changes by taking on the opposition head on, like he kind of made us think he would in the campaign. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, and I found it very striking in the in the article. It, it really pointed out to me like there were two tasks he really campaigned on, which were 
One was taking on the manipulation of what we think is good and what a lot of, of, of what we think the country truly needs for the majority of the country, not just for the elite. Right. And then also as a means to achieve that, to try to fix Washington. Right. Obama's focused, I realize, just mostly on trying to fix Washington. Yeah. All of his things are like, we can't argue so much, guys. Yeah. Well, don't be a, a soccer coach. <laughs> <laughs> when like, the world is crumbling around you, maybe yeah. take the bigger fight on and say maybe we'll work on getting along better later after we fix things. Yeah, I- I- exactly. And 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 he, I, I, you know, I'm guessing his logic was well, if we can fix how we dialogue around here, then we will fix the big things. And but he had the majorities. But to run with the narrative. Yes, exactly. And, and the article says he want the country desperately wanted him to run with it. Yeah, and, and from minute one he was like, eh, maybe we'll just try to get along now. <laughs> exactly. And and then I watched this FDR um, YouTube that was going around too where FDR, it was the day before his election, first election I believe, where he talks about, you know, bring on the hate. I know the haters are here and bring it on. And the guy ended up landsliding, you know, 47 of the 48 states right. at the time, you know. And and so he wasn't like, not a, he was not afraid to say, I know who I am. I know who the villains are here, and and there's there is a right and a wrong. And trust me, as someone who's a practicing Zen Buddhist, I get the whole d- duality thing, and that ultimately there is, in in one perspective, there is no right or wrong. There is no left or right. There is no up or down. But uh, but when it comes to national politics, there is. You know, the average brain needs to know that there is a. Uh, a troll under the bridge, and right. we need to fight the troll to get to the other side. And I mean, I think the 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 truth is certainly not always going to be on one side, right? And of I understand not. Obama's motivation in wanting to clear up the garbage yes. so that we can just have authentic conversations right. and get to real pro- real problem solving. Yes, which is what we desperately need. But the problem is that the Republicans are so excellent at weaving this narrative that's false. They Mm -hmm. weave this narrative as though they're helping everybody and the Democrats are hurting everybody when they're the ones hurting everybody. It's really the opposite of the truth. And I'll I'll posit that theory is maybe why they're so good at it is when you don't have the facts, when you don't have the (laughs) actual truth on your side, you got to become a storyteller. (laughs) That's why a magician's so good at swinging his arms around and distracting you because if you really look, there's a fucking bunny in the hat. So he's got to put smoke off on the left and right and be like, once upon a time there was a bunny. And then he's like tickling the bunny's balls inside this fucking Abraham Lincoln cap to get him to pop out at the right moment. Yeah, you know, and you know the thing is, the thing is, is that Republicans wake up every morning uh, and believe that they actually are doing the right thing for the majority. They believe that their philosophies and their theories, right. in the long term, are going to bend things uh, so that things work out for everyone. And you know, and I was thinking about this today. I'm not even certain about that, really. Well, no, I, I am pretty certain. I think a lot of them have good intentions as they want to help people, but I think they want to help the whole country as a second goal to making sure the wealthy get richer. I I really do because I understand the whole philosophy that it's going to trickle down and all corporate money eventually gets to the people, but it's just not true when they just keep coffers full of money and they do not really... Right. I mean, it clearly doesn't work that way. The the proof is in the pudding, which is just... That's what's so crazy. I think that's the crazy-making part of it, is they continue to argue that. I mean, how... Not even just symbolic... to To have such a strong narrative that people are so hypnotized by that you can't even concede 
as a token, we'll close corporate jet loopholes right. in the taxes. Yes. I mean, that's a tiny thing that affects like probably like a hundred people in the country. <laughs> They're like, absolutely not. It's principle. Well, so instead, we get our debt, our, our, uh, our uh, credit rating lowered. And there's a tax now on everybody when, when interest rates are going to have to eventually rise, exactly. when mortgages get tightened up again. Everyone's taxed. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it, it, the, oh, what was I going to say? Shit about something. Um, um, anyway. It's probably good. It was. It was really good. Oh, no. Well, this is what I was thinking too earlier. This is another point was that generally though, this country is conservative. Mm. You know, it's like I, I think I – think I woke up to this today, and, and I may be crazy, and I may change my mind in a day because I do that often, but I was really thinking about this today. Growing up as a progressive like I did, growing up with a father like I did who had certain values, um, I've always felt like an outsider, never felt part of mainstream politics. Um, when Clinton got elected, I felt a little bit more like, oh, wow, someone on our side right. is actually in there and he's going to do some good stuff. And then he just did some really fucked up crappy shit. I mean, right. the whole Communications Act thing, I mean, completely f- fucked media for the next 50 years, basically. I mean, that, that alone and NAFTA and, and other things. Um, and so I started to think today, why – why, why does it always feel? Why does it always feel like I'm on the losing end of things as a progressive, as a person who who wants to watch things evolve? And and why does getting anything like civil rights in this country or things that you would think were basic, like human connection, compassion things, why did we have to like go on the streets and get fire hoses blasted at us to, to have this basic right? I mean, look at the marijuana laws right now. It's the same thing. It's like, it's fucking marijuana, people. It's like drinking tequila. Right. It's like, really, we're this. you've demonized it? And I really got like, you know what? This is a fucking conservative country from day one. And it's all, and the conservative in the sense that individual freedom is number one. And the collective just isn't. It isn't number one. It's number two. And also that status quo is status quo. And people like the status quo. They don't want change too fast. And so any kind of progress, it takes a motherfucking amount of energy to make it happen. And it just – it made me feel better today. It was like, you know what? We're not necessarily on the losing end. We're just pushing against – a huge tide of status quo and a lot of people who don't really know what the fuck is going on. And so they, you know, they vote against their own interests. Absolutely. But, and, and I mean, they're, they're, a lot of our population is certainly um, mired in this, this false talk and these games and these false narratives. But I think the latter point that you made just about that, that the masses are more conservative, I think it's not the progressives are. In my opinion, it's not that progressives are on the losing end. It's just that by the definition of it, they're always trying to progress something. Yes. So when you achieve but one you goal, you feel like a loser. There's another. <laughs> I mean, I at least I do personally. I'm a jaded optimist. I always think we can fit. I think things are horribly fucked up and think we're going to fix them. That's just the, my kind of my worldview, I guess. Right. That you know maybe dwindles now and again when I think, <laughs> or, or maybe the world is going to explode very soon. <laughs> yes. They're going to steal all of our online data. We're going to be broke and, and have our bank accounts wiped out. I'm going to learn to surf. And we'll be clubbing each other for Trader Joe's burritos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think if it gets to that place in the world, I'm going to probably loosen up on my diet restrictions. <laughs> I will probably allow myself to eat some non-organic food. You know, you probably could. Yeah. I think we, we'll give you permission on that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I used to get, you know, 
during George Bush's two terms, especially during his second term, I was just so angry at what was going on mm-hmm. in our country and in the world and the way that that these these a lot of lies really that we allowed into our narrative and that became facts for so many people yep. affected the way I could just literally see it like snowballing out of control in a very bad way, and it got me so frustrated. Then when Obama got in office, and and while I'm certainly I agree with some of these criticisms that he could have shaped the narrative shaped, differently, shaped and moved things a lot faster, yeah, and had a different focus. Maybe. But he's done some good things Absolutely. that said, yes. and he's gotten some things reversed and some things fixed, and um, that. I started to get a little bit more peace with the process again and mm-hmm. remember kind of what our founders had in mind was that they made it so that we can only progress slowly. That it's we true. can progress, but checks and balances are very important. Otherwise, you have this like whimsical, gelatin slinky of a country that's going to jump to thing and thing, and then you don't have this solid base. So right. I'm, I've started to get a lot more peace with the fact that progress happens slow as long as it's happening and it's happening i think faster because yeah there were hoses for civil rights but then now gay people are being allowed to marry state yes. by state without any violence without right. any that's true attack dogs yeah. and marijuana is being legalized here and here and here and here yeah so i think that our country is getting more open-minded and i think that's why the the Republicans probably and the Tea Party as well have had to like amp up their narrative because mm-hmm. they pro- maybe they feel that their control is in its last throes. Well, it's it's true too. I mean, I study a system called spiral dynamics, which studies change in in cultures. It's an amazing amazing thing. Go online and, and Google spiral dynamics. Uh, and one of the things they talk about is that people react in a certain way because the environmental conditions. Are kind of trigger them to react that way, and when things do start to progress, uh, you know, especially towards a, a more liberal, progressive type of thing in a culture, the people who are the traditionalists do kind of dig in their heels because they there's there's like some part of the psyche. It's like if you think of an individual, you know, when like um, maybe you're an addict, and then suddenly like the writings on the wall that mm-hmm. oh maybe this isn't going well for me. And yet some part of you is like, fuck it, man. I'm going to go and drink a whole thing. That's when you go on your bender, right? Yes, exactly. It makes sense. I guess also because I guess sort of by definition too, a a conservative mind is kind of more stagnant and is very set in its ways. And so it's maybe not able even to process how they feel about all these rapid changes. All you can do is like drop anchor. Yeah. Well, and you know, and it's like, you know, when someone drops down a new world view in front of you. Uh, you have to be pretty open-minded and have a good, strong, healthy ego in order to even be able to stand in that perspective and check it out a little bit and say, you know, yeah, and say, hey, is oh, this is different. Okay, well, maybe it's not exactly fitting who I am right now, but wow, I can see, I can see that point of view. I can see that, and you have to be willing to do that. And there is a rigidity. I mean, certainly when you look at these budget talks, and you like you were saying about the rigidity around the even the corporate jet thing, right. it's like really like you're going to be. That's the thing you're going to take a stand right. on. The rigidity of it is so frustrating. You want to like bang your head up against a wall yeah. with it. I think if there was one trait that I would take out of human beings I think would make the world just infinitely better and so much more close to harmony and peace is is everybody should be forced their brain should be forced to admit when they're wrong. Oh, wouldn't that just be beautiful? Just that one thing. <laughs> it's because people talking about narratives again it's that is that power structures in general and I think the Republican Party 
represents more that manipulative power structure that tries to keep the common man down by weaving these narratives while the real truth is they're concentrating all the wealth and power at the top. Mm-hmm. I think that that's very analogous to the way religions have have manipulated people's minds. Yes. It's the exact it, same it, thing. It's a, str- it's a very strict hierarchy. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and they tell the common man that they're winning right. by them losing. Right. They say give money now so when you die you'll get money. Right. They say sacrifice now so that when you're in this place that may or may not exist but we're telling you it does, then you can have fun. Well, what about now? How, how can I have fun now? How can I enjoy my life now? Yeah. They just somehow get you to leap beyond the most obvious present thing is your freedom and they do that by the very basis of not allowing people to have a proper definition of ego. Mm -hmm. I think that is the biggest crux of what our whole planet sees wrong, 93% of it Mm -hmm. or so. Um, And, you know, Ayn Rand is an author that I think is often maligned by the left Mm -hmm. and by liberals. I really like Ayn Rand. I don't agree with every bit of her of her objectivist philosophies that you should never help people, that there shouldn't be philanthropy, that right. no collaboration can be good. I don't agree with all of that. Right. But I, but she opened my eyes to the most basic concept that I think she got right and no other literature that I've seen gets right is we are taught as a, as a, as a people, as a civilization to value selflessness mm-hmm. and to abhor selfishness. Mm-hmm. When if you look at the definitions of the words – Selfless doesn't make any sense. Right. Nobody can be without their self. Every single decision that you make comes from yourself. It is a selfish decision. Unless literally you're like chopping off your arm. Even then, if you're chopping off your arm to give your arm to your wife, it's because it makes you happier to give your arm to her. Right. So that one fact was so twisted that people are, are taught and conditioned over centuries and generations to believe that when they sacrifice, when they do good, they're not being themselves. Right. They're not acting from themselves. That is selfless. When they do things like buy a car, that's selfish. So we're not even allowing people to define themselves with their best traits. Well, and it, it's it's a great point because in basic psychological development as a child, like the, the healthy development of a human being, one of the things that needs to happen is for one to have a healthy sense of self right. and that there's a separateness, first of all, between I and you and, and that my needs, that I learn how to take care of my needs in a way that um, keeps me alive, first of all, and, and, and also brings some level of contentment to my life. And of course, there's always the tension between the I and the we and the, and, and the environment, basically. Right. And, and so if you, if you never get a healthy sense of self, you're, you're always looking for a way to fulfill that. And that can be done in very surreptitious, unconscious, shadowy ways. Pornographic. Yeah, which are not healthy. I mean, right. all sorts of ways. I mean, any kind of codependent relationship. I mean, that's someone who's, who's quote unquote selfless right. and is living their life and their self through the relationship of another person. Right, right. And even people who give constantly in some sort of self-sacrificial way, it's, it's an ego feed for them because they're saying to themselves, oh, look how, what a better human being I am because I, I give. And I'm not talking about on a conscious level they say that, but on an unconscious level. And so absolutely, I think a healthy part of 
of being a human is learning to be selfish. I know for myself, I grew up in an environment where I had to sacrifice myself completely and for the environment, for the sake of the health of the family, the mental health of the family. And it took me decades to figure out how to say, no, this is what I want and to not feel like a total schmuck about that. Right. You know. And then, of course, watching someone like my dad who – Early on, he was a loner. He was a kid on the streets, you know, a glatchkey kid. He learned how to take care of himself in a very kind of selfish way. But at the same time, he was one of the most generous, kind people there was. Right. You know, so I th- so there is both of these things, and, and I agree with you with the with the um, the Anne, whatever his name is Ein 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 Rain, whatever he called her. Say it as German as possible. <laughs> Ein Rand ein, the best ein, ein Rand. Um, that there is an interesting thing where she talks about the importance of the individual and that it is important. I mean, I know as an artist, it's all about the individual. For me, it's all about my creative urges right. that comes from me that's uniquely mine. One of my favorite quotes of your dad is he always says, I love people. I love individuals. I hate groups. Yes, exactly. And And it is that. And at the same time, you know – we live in a culture. We live in a society. We live in families. We live in neighborhoods. And we can be individuals and take care of ourselves and at the same time see the unending joys and benefits of helping out and understanding that the collective needs attention too at the same time. Right. And so there's this real balance. And I think you know it's interesting about Obama that I, I think Obama really gets that on a very deep level. That he he understands that, and I think that's part of his fix Washington. Like he really right, wants totally, to have that totally. real conversation with people. Totally. So he maybe in his eyes, he's maybe to give him the benefit of that. Maybe he is taking on the bigger battle in yes, his eyes. But unfortunately, it's not the best way to get shit done right now. Right. You're dealing with an out of control addict. <laughs> right. And I mean, <laughs> who that, can't get the subtlety of that? Absolutely. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's that's you know something I've I've thought for a long time. To me, it's 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 a huge moral failing on the part of the left that. They do not shout as aggressively yes. as the right. That they don't weave these narratives, especially with the facts on their side. It's like if, if if the right's willing to shout about war and treating the poor like shit, why can't the left shout about helping the poor yeah. and saving lives yep. and not killing people with random baseless wars? Yeah, it, it's a moral imperative to shout that. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost criminal to be pussyfooting around those issues. Well, and I think there is a way though that. When the left shouts, it can sound whiny, and when the right shouts, it can sound frightening. Right. And I think there's a third way that someone hasn't quite figured – or the culture itself, the, the, the national psyche, the collective right. psyche hasn't figured out yet to have that conversation, which is like really rooted in uh, like moral certainty – and above the fray at the same time, right. you know, and that's right. why people like Martin Luther King, you know, and 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 certainly, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson, <laughs> the two top <laughs> at, at black times. leaders and activists. But I was thinking, like, you know, Robert Robert Kennedy also, you know, like people who really could stand above the fray. And and speak the truth about something we don't. I, well, I hate to point out the obvious scary recruiting. Thing you have to put uh, on the Oprah? brochure of those two. Oprah, no, no, no. I'm saying of of, <laughs> of well, yeah. Oprah's the one because she does with a lot of fluff around it, and she's loved. I wrote a I wrote a sketch once. Well, writing partner Scott. It was called Oprah is a businessman. It was that really Oprah goes backstage, takes off her mask, and she's a white businessman. Nice. But um, wow. 
No, but I mean the fact that those people that have tried to bring it to a much more reasonable, fact-based, mm-hmm. humanistic argument, Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, and Martin Luther King were assassinated. Exactly. I mean it does not bode well for future recruits. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that in um, 10, 15 years, Obama could have been that. Like his inexperience – like in this article, they talk about his inexperience. And it's like, yeah, I kind of get that. It's like there is a moral ground that he was taking during the campaign, during his speeches that were really resonant for a lot of people. But, but that's why I don't think it's experience. I think it really is just he had the lack of of, of gumption to do it. Because yeah, he, maybe he he seemed to be to be uh, iterating those things perfectly in the campaign in a right. way that really inspired like sixty plus percent of the country. Yep. He just needed to continue that. And yeah. Instead, he got in. And he's like, "Well, okay, I get it. And you guys have the money, and I have to get reelected." And this, and, yeah. And he just decided to not risk yeah. losing and, his reelection. And you know, I mean, this is really what I thought too. I mean, it was when I saw he was he was getting ahead, and you know, he was probably going to become president. I thought I was kind of worried. I thought, you know what? It, maybe I mean, even though Palin scared the hell out of me, I was like, maybe John McCain needs to take this one because the country is, no matter what, going to go in the shitter. Because that's just the cycle nature of right. economy, I and mean, that's the way this our economy is right. set up. It's going to go into the shitter for the next three or four years, no doubt. Of course, they're going to blame the president, <laughs> and right. of course, now they're going to blame the. Bl- Did you see Larry Miller on the Daily Show last no. night? Oh my god! Everyone, go to YouTube or go to whatever it is and, and watch it. Larry does a whole thing about blaming the black president for the debt. It's <laughs> 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 so great. But I was just like. Fuck, man, we have this chance with this guy who's eloquent and has a higher vision, has like what I call an integral view yeah. of the planet, and he's going to get stuck in the in the game that's that's inevitably going to happen because it's going to happen. The economy's going to go in the shitter. All sorts of shit's going to hit the fan. And um and you know, oh, the right's just going to have a day with him. And- it's just it's just such a shame because you saw that he had he, he has the ability to inspire us and I guarantee you it's going to come out again in the campaign. We're all of a sudden all going to get real inspired again. He'll be like, oh, now is when we take on it. And it's going to be, oh, yep. my God, hope, hope 2.0. Let's do this shit. <laughs> and it's, we're all going to get very excited because it's going to be amazing. It's gonna be in, he's going to be in arenas and it's going to be – he'll be on tour with Dane Cook. And <laughs> You'll be opening for him. I'll be opening for him. <laughs> and uh, I will not play this podcast before that. I will bury it. But And and uh, you see him now and even like in the last, last moments of, of the death ceiling fight, his passion is just gone. He yeah, literally is no. like, he's like, he's uh, a, compromise shouldn't be about work. Yeah. And oh, I got to go golfing. I can't, you know, I used to get excited when he would talk and yeah. do a news conference. And this he week, looks bored now. I, he, well, he's, he's great. And he's, I'm like, oh, this man's getting beaten up by this shit. He should golf more. I think people criticize that he should take more time <laughs> off. Just give us one day a week of yes. inspiring Obama. <laughs> That's all we need from our president is to be a figurehead. He's the one that shapes the narrative more than anybody. And he stopped shaping the narrative. Yeah. He keeps, like, I remember I was really, like, a really Really weak moment blew, blew my mind was I think it was two State of the Union speeches ago when he's making this big push for health care reform. Right. And he actually had this – again, it was old Obama. Yep. It was a really beautiful speech, yep. very inspiring. He's like, this is our vision for what we're going to do for the country. We're going to do this. We're going to make sure everybody's insured. This is the plan. It's the only way. We must do it. The crowd's like, yes. And then he ended it, I swear to God, by saying, but still, if anybody else has ideas <laughs> – 
Are you kidding? You had us in your hand and you still said in the 11th hour. But if the Republicans have something they want to say, we can uh, just slam dunk the ball. I love it. Well, Mr. Glebe, we're out of time, believe it or we not. We are. Are you I kidding know, me? I know. I felt like we're 20 minutes in. I know. It's uh, We're talking. We're going to get more hours here, clearly. Oh, my God. I know. Well, we'll have you back, of course. I would love it. This has been very entertaining. Well, and, good. And, I've been and entertained. Lovely. And I hope, I, hope, I hope the crowd out there in and the not, internet. Do I have 10 seconds to say one more of thing? Of course, yeah. Not to malign people on the right either. I'm just maligning the people you know, too much. I'm maligning the people who have manipulated what it stands for. Absolutely. Both sides stand for great things. Yes. The, the right wants small government because they want people to take care of each other on a local level. Right. But it's gotten so muddled and out of control, that's not what you're buying now. And, when you elect and we've all been to the DMV. We all know what bureaucracy can do to your psyche on any given day. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true. All right. I want to thank, uh, thank you, Ben, for coming. Thank you for having me, Kevin. And I want to thank, of course, Johnny Dam for running this great station and thank all my peeps, all my friends, all my Twitter folks, all my Facebookers, my husband, Bob, who's just uh, sicker than a dog right now with a cold. And uh, Babs Roman, who's not here. She's at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. If you're in Edinburgh, go see Set List. Amazing stuff going on there. Why do people think dogs are so sick? I don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) And next week, I'm having two of my dearest friends, Wendy Hammers and Rachel Alice, coming over. We're going to talk about solo shows, doing solo shows. They're both launching their solo shows. And we're going to leave here with a little something from my dad, which you've heard before. Um, Where is it? Oh, here it is. Uh, You guys have a great week. And uh, here's a little ditty from dad. I gotta hear this. Everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if the sun comes out each day, everything must be okay. Yes, everything is okay anyway. If all we ever had was total war, and peace and love and giving were a bore. Well, if we cried and died all day, you could still hear someone say, That everything is okay anyway. Volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, and tidal waves. And man is forced to live again in caves. But if all we had was fire, you'd still hear the caveman choir singing everything is okay anyway. Yes, everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if kids come out to play, everything must be okay. Yeah, everything is okay anyway. If no one was allowed to jump or run. If no one was permitted to have fun. And if it rained hard every day, you still hear someone say that everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if you do not miss your pay, if you hear what I will say... You will know that on this day, I have seen a little ray of forgetfulness.